If you keep your Bibles open at um, that passage in Judges, uh, and uh, the, um, there's an outline in the bulletin if you find that helpful as well as we go through. And today uh, we have the challenge of listening to an oppressive text rather than a liberating one. It, uh, I acknowledge that the contents of this passage might be confronting uh, for some of you, and I will seek to handle the passage with all sensitivity, but uh, if there are any trigger points that lead you uh, to dark places, uh, then I encourage you to talk to people you trust uh, and get the support that you need. Uh, with that in mind, uh, let me pr pray once again as we come uh, to this, uh, as we approach the weight of God's word this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do acknowledge you as the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles and as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, uh, remind us afresh that so too does your comfort. As we come to your living and active word this morning, your word that judges the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts, we, we call on you to use your word to search our hearts, God, to know our hearts and to test us and to know our anxious thoughts, to see if there's any offensive way in us and to lead us in the way everlasting. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to hear the phrase Merry Christmas a lot in the coming week. It's the Christmas week, of course, and we don't tend to use the word merry uh, in much in day-to-day -day English. Maybe merry-go-round was the only other thing I could think of. Um, but we all want to be happy at Christmas time. It's a time to be merry. But there are different types of memory verses that we might recall at Christmas time to remind us of the joy of Christmas. When we quote the Bible, we often focus on parts of the Bible that make us feel happy, the joyful parts that highlight the good news of Jesus. I'm sure the contents of today's passage is not one of your memory verses. Because there are many parts in the Bible that don't seem to fit but rather they take us to a very dark place. A place of heaviness that reveals to the destructive effects of when people ignore God and do what is right in their own eyes. And we know from our own experience that many have or are having a dark experiences of their own. And sadly, the book of Judges has shown us that doing what is right in our own eyes is not always right. So whatever is going on for us right now, we all know that life doesn't always unfold the way we want it to. There are always things that don't seem to fit as neatly as we like. What do we do when things don't fit? What do we do when things just don't unfold the way we would like them to, when things don't fit neatly? We explore that question as we work our way through the text. Now, the two introductions at the start of Judges are complemented by two conclusions at the end of Judges. And last week we saw how the first conclusion that Hank uh, explained for us descended into a kind of religious chaos. And this week it sort of descends into a moral chaos and depravity as well. 
And throughout the book of Judges, we've seen this recurring cycle related to the word judge. We use the word judge to summarise it. The, the leader, the judge dies, they are unfaithful, leads to distress and judgement. God graciously raises up a judge to save them. They enjoy peace. Then the cycle repeats itself all over again when the judge dies. And this cycle has been told from God's perspective because at the beginning of Judges it uses the language of the people did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. But it's the perspective of the people that dominates the two conclusions as the phrase everyone did what was right in their own eyes begins to appear for the beginning of chapter 17 and at the end of chapter 21. And this story that we have today over three chapters, we just read one part, it's basically in two parts, the actions and then the reactions. Uh, and the actions and the reactions are just as bad as each other. Chapter 19 describes this tragic event. And then chapter 20 and 21 describes the tragic series of reactions to that event. And the final verse sums up why this behaviour should come as no surprise when it says at the end of verse 21, in those days Israel had no king, everyone did as they saw fit. Now as we come to this story in chapter 19, you might be familiar with that sort of heartwarming feeling of coming home after a long trip away, going on a long road trip and the, the trip of pulling up in the driveway and uh, it's, that, it's nice to be home. It was a great trip but it's just nice to be home sweet home. But sometimes, depending on what happened during that trip, that return home may be a little bittersweet because something significant has happened when you've been away from home and so when you come back things are not the same again. On the other hand, I do acknowledge for others, home life itself is not so sweet and you would rather, rather stay away from home. But in this initial story in chapter 19 there is a movement from leaving home and then returning home again. But it is what happens away from home that sets the context for the downward spiral of destruction that comes later in chapter 20 and 21. And it's the type of story that as you read it, it raises red flags along the way that hint at something that is to come. So keep an eye out for some of these red flags in, in the detail of the story as we go through. And verse 1 has a couple right from the beginning in chapter 19. It says, Now in those days Israel had no king, and now a Levite who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. Red flag number one, Israel had no king. Number two, the, the Levite in last week's passage, he was out of place. It was an, uh, an outsider and so too the Levite here. He's a sojourner, a wanderer, a vulnerable migrant residing permanently in Ephraim. There's also no mention of a wife here, the second, another red flag. What is a Levite who was meant to work in the temple doing with a concubine rather than being married to a wife? Perhaps she's purely used as a sexual partner, treated as an object for his own gratification. It just doesn't quite fit in here. The outcome of this dysfunctional relationship is clearly on show in verse 2 when it says, but she was unfaithful to him. She left him and went back to her father's house in Bethlehem, Judah. After she had been there four months, her husband went to her to persuade her to return. 
He had with him his servant and two donkeys. She took him into her father's house, and when her father saw him, he greatly welcomed him. His father-in-law, the girl's father, prevailed upon him to stay, so he remained with him three days, eating and drinking and sleeping there. The verses go on to talk about uh, uh, a lot of excessive hospitality, which is in some way a way to try to appease the Levite because his father, the father-in-law perhaps felt ashamed that his daughter had returned home instead of staying with a Levite. But eventually after three days, um, they, they, after being persuaded to stay for three days, eventually they leave and in verse 9 there it says, Then when the man with his concubine and his servant got up to leave, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said, Now look, it's almost evening. Spend the night here. The day is nearly over. Stay and enjoy yourself. Early tomorrow you can get up and be on your way home. But unwilling to stay another night, the man left and went toward Jebus, that is Jerusalem, with his two saddled donkeys and his concubine. The over-excessive hospitality by the father-in-law meant that they ended up leaving later in the day than they originally planned, another red flag. They end up in a city called Gibeah where the tribe of Benjamin was based. And there's more red flags that appear in verse 15. They avoided, first of all, they avoided a foreign city because they thought it was safer to go to their own tri uh, a tribal city where the Benjamins were based. In verse 15 it says this, There they stopped to spend the night. They went and sat in the city square, but no one took them into their, his home for the night. Another red flag, alone, vulnerable and away from home, you'd expect that the people of God would welcome them into their midst. But a spark of hope appears in, the, in verse 16 uh, when it says this, That evening an old man from the hill country of Ephraim who was living in Gibeah, the men of the place were Benjamites, came in from his work in the fields. After the, uh, after the usual where are you from questions and the old man says in verse 20, you're welcome at my house, the old man said. Let me supply whatever you need, only don't spend the night in the square. Red flag again. This is not the wilderness. This is not a Canaanite town. Uh, this is the promised land. And he's being warned not to stay in the square. 21. And uh, so he took him in uh, into his house and fed his donkeys. After they had washed their feet, they had something to eat and drink. But in the safety of this man's home, they are jolted from that moment of respite by a sudden noise as some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house, pounding on the door. Not knocking on the door, pounding on the door. You can imagine the sound that jolts them. They shouted to the old man who owned the house, bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. The owner of the house went outside and said to them, No, my friends, don't be so vile, since this man is my guest. Don't do this disgraceful thing. Well, things seem to be boding well at that point in time, but the spark of hope that the vulnerable concubine may have been clinging to is traumatically snuffed out in the appalling words that come in verse 24. Look, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. I will bring them out to you now, and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. 
but to this man don't do such a disgraceful thing. But the men would not listen to him, so the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them, and they raped her and abused her throughout the night. And at dawn, they let her go. There is nothing but a horrid feeling of repulsiveness that stirs up in the stomach and down the back of the neck when you read those words. How on earth could they think that this was the right thing to do? What can help them to see that what is right in their own eyes is not always right? They need an outside perspective to see that what is right in their own eyes is not always right. And rather than being shaped by God's creation principle that man and women, man and woman are both created in his image, equally intrinsically valuable and to be treated that way, Israel instead has been shaped by the per persuasive view of the culture around them. And women are treated as expedient objects. We live in a culture that has become conditioned to the sexualisation of women and children, even here in this day. We live in a suburb where as you ride up the escalator in the biggest shopping centre in town, there is, in, that, in the name of advertising and chasing the almighty dollar, we are confronted by the larger-than-life-size image of a woman in her underwear and a seductive pose. What kind of message is this sending that the normal way to consider the worth and value of women in our society comes down to our curves when we walk into the shopping centre? We live in a culture that celebrates and boasts of its pride in embracing an expression of sexuality that was never designed to be part of our identity. And the tragic part of this story is that the man and the concubine thought they were safer in the city of God's people than they were in the neighbouring city of foreigners. But there is more to depravity to come in verse 26 and following. Because at daybreak, the woman went back to the house where her master was staying, fell down at the door and lay there till midnight, uh, till, till daylight. In verse 27, when her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way, there lay his concubine, fallen in the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let's go. But there was no answer. Then the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. When he reached home, he took a knife and cut up his concubine limb by limb into 12 parts and sent them into the, all the areas of Israel. Everyone who saw it said, such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Think about it, consider it, tell us what to do. And as much as we are repulsed by the despicable behaviour of the people in that city, 
It is equally repulsive to see the callous attitude that the actions of the actions of the Levite himself. There is nothing in the text to say that the woman had actually died when she was found at the front of the home. But the downward spiral of Israel had reached, has reached the bottom of the barrel. It is revealed very clearly that doing what is right in our own eyes is not always right. And it brings us to this series of reactions to this event in chapter 20 to 21. I'm going to move through it very quickly, very quick summary of what the reaction is. And then all the Israelites in chapter 20 verse 1 from Dan to Bathsheba and from the land of Gilead came out as one man and assembled before the Lord in Mizpah. For the first time since Othniel, which was the very first judge, if you remember, the people are united in their repugnance. They will not listen to God, they will not listen to judges, but they're united behind a deeply morally corrupted Levite. And the leaders, in verse 2, of all the people of all the tribes of Israel, took their places in the assembly of the people of God. And the Levite went on to tell them a somewhat edited version of what happened to minimise his own contribution to this tragedy. If you had more time, you could compare the way that he recounts the story compared to what actually happened to make himself not look that he was culpable of what's going on. And in verse 8, responds the summary all the people rose up as one man saying none of us will go home no not one of us will return to his house but now this is what we'll do to Gibeah we'll go up against it as the lot directs and verse 11 so all the men of Israel got together united as one man against the city verse 15 Israel apart from Benjamin mustered of 400,000 swordsmen, all of them fighting men. Verse 18, the Israelites went up to Bethel and inquired of God. They said, who of us shall go first to fight against the Benjaminites? The Lord replied, Judah shall go first. And you'll notice there, and if you've been reading in the text during the week, that they pursue a course of action, what they think is right in their own eyes. But they don't pause to consider whether what is right in their own eyes is actually right in God's. The only outside perspective that they are interested in is to get God to rubber stamp their plans. And it's a temptation all of us, um, it's a temptation for all of us to decide on a course of action and then do something token to acknowledge God in our plans, asking him to bless it. At times we are too quick to seek a rubber stamp from God rather than to seek his leading. And instead of getting an outside perspective from God, we assume that what is right in our own eyes is always right. That is why I want to maintain and work hard at maintaining our weekly online prayer meetings because it's an avenue to constantly bring our plans before the Lord to seek his leading. And as we head into the new year, are you seeking God's leading or are you seeking his rubber stamp instead? Let's pray for wisdom to know the difference as a congregation and individually as well. 
But in verse 20, they go ahead with what is right in their own eyes. And the men of Israel went out to fight the Benjamites and took up battle positions against them at Gibeah. 21, the Benjamites came out of Gibeah and cut down 22,000 Israelites on the battlefield that day. Now, shell-shocked in defeat, they do the token thing again, inquiring of the Lord in verse 23. Shall we go up again to battle against the Benjamites, our brothers? It's interesting you'll note that uh, they've included the word brothers in here this time. They're beginning to recognise the strain their decisions have had on their kinship. Beginning to question that maybe what was right in their own eyes was not so right after all. Verse 25. And uh, this time, when the Benjamites came out from Gibeah to oppose them, they cut down another 18,000 Israelites, all of them armed with swords. After their second devastating defeat, once again the people do their token inquiring of the Lord. But their inquiry takes on a different shape in verse 28 there. It says this. They asked, shall we go up again to battle with Benjamin, our brother, or not? For the first time, they're actually asking God whether this is actually the right plan of action or not. Something they should have done to begin with. But anyway, they go ahead and the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel in verse 35. And on that day, the Israelites struck down 25,100 Benjamites, all armed with swords, Again, 44, 18,000 Benjamites fell with all of their valiant fighters. And 46, on that day, 25,000 Benjamites, swordsmen fell, all of them valiant fighters. The repetition of the word armed with swords, valiant fighters, twice is a reminder of the, the wastefulness of the decision to go to war. Now, ironically, Israel shows more commitment to fighting with their brothers than they did with fighting the source of their depravity in the Canaanites themselves. They did to their own brothers what they were supposed to do to the nations around them for their moral depravity and corrupt practices at the beginning of the book of Judges. But somehow, in the mystery of all this, God's unexpected way of using the war to bring about judgment what got, got, in the mystery of all this, it is God's unexpected way of using the war to bring about judgment on Israel as a nation as well as the tribe of Benjamin because so many people perished. Because the people had become just as depraved as the nations around them. 600 men, in verse 47, uh, uh, survived and fled into the desert to the rock of Rimmon, and where they stayed for four months. And if we had time to read the rest of the story, we, we don't have to do that. But there is a, there's a massive shift and a change of heart in chapter 21 as they acknowledge that one tribe might be cut off from Israel. They ponder whether doing what is right in their own eyes was not so right after all. And they try to make amends by stealing women from other tribes. And once again, their own solution is right in their own eyes, but it causes devastation along the way. At the end of 21, it's just a, a devastating picture of the way they've tried to make up for all their mistakes along the way. Now let's just try to pull a couple of threads together and uh, uh, recognise a few things in these chapters. 
I'm making a few comparisons here. In, in contrast to the account of the concubine in chapter 19, which is very personal account, chapter 21 is very matter of fact. It's a, a detached kind of report. It's just telling you what happened. There is outrage about the concubine, but there's indifference about killing their own people and stealing their own women. Their indifference as a nation mirrors the Levite's indifference to his concubine when he stumbled over her at the door. And at the end of the story, however, it seems to fit neatly together in verse 24. It says this, at that time, verse 24, the Israelites left that place and went home to their tribes and clans, each to his own inheritance. If verse 24 was the end of the book of Judges, it would be a sort of a happy ever after kind of story. That despite all the trauma and tragedy, in the end, the right decisions were made because everyone's a happy camper. Everybody goes back to their own little tribe and lives in their own little inheritance. The end has justified the means. What, seen, what was right in their own eyes seems to be right after all. But we have been saying that um, an outside perspective helps us to see that what is right in our own eyes is not always right. And that very outside perspective comes like a sting in the tail in the very last verse of the whole book of Judges. Verse 25. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. The fact that the book ends with verse 25 and not verse 24 shatters that false happy ever after perception. It's a bit like Christmas Day, isn't it, sometimes? You open the presents in the morning and everybody's happy. And then by lunchtime, the arguing begins. The emptiness re-emerges. The alcohol appears. The unresolved conflicts resurface. The reality of debt kicks in. And as the judge's era draws to a close, it anticipates a new stage of Israel's history an era where the kingship will bring a measure of stability as they look for a ruler who can overcome sin and show them how to do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. But as the, the Samuel and the following books show, instead of following what was right in their own eyes, the people followed what was right in their king's eyes. But all we have to do is read the next few books after Judges to know that what was right in the king's eyes was also not always right, as they also fell tragically short. It drives us to the reality that there must be something more than doing what is right in our own eyes. We need an outside perspective to navigate our way through life. And Jesus steps into history to give us that outside perspective Jesus was the only one who could do what was right in his own eyes and always be right in the eyes of the Lord. But through his death to pay the penalty, but through his death to pay the penalty for when we do what is evil in the eyes of the Lord, Jesus opens up a way for us to be reconciled to God and to inherit God's promised blessing for those who submit to the rule of Jesus. And that is the great news of the gospel which we bring when we say Merry Christmas because it's a reminder that we also fall short 
but Jesus has brought reconciliation to us through the cross. Well, I've tried to make some points of application along the way and as we draw this book of Judges to a close, uh, let me add one more point. We can be reminded that these final events, that in these final events that God is at work, not just in the good news stories in the Bible, but in the difficulties of life when things don't fit. Even though we won't completely understand it, we still need to confess God's sovereignty in the dark times as well as the good times. That in the darkness of life, that as we cast our cares on the Lord, we can be confident that he will sustain us through them, not necessarily rescue us from them. An outside perspective helps us to see that what is right in our own eyes is not always right, and that's why we need to listen to God's word. And as we travel through this season of hope and heartache, whatever the Christmas season means for you, let us not lose sight of the importance in reflecting on God's word as he gives us an outside perspective to show us what is right in our own eyes is not always right at all. And that we can keep reflecting and thinking and allowing the outside perspective of God's word make decisions so that we are not always doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now we're going to pause for a moment of silence to reflect on these words of what God has been saying in his word this morning. But we're also going to reflect on how we ourselves have been doing what is right in our own eyes rather than what is right in God's. And then we will pray a prayer of confession together as it comes up on the screen. I'll give you a minute. It's going to be a long time. And try not to be distracted by the sounds of the children or the traffic. But let's just pause for a minute and then we'll pray together the prayer of confession on the overhead. <laughs>